Our scripture lesson this morning comes from 3 John, verses 1 through 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health, just as it is well with your soul. For I was overjoyed when some brothers and sisters arrived and testified to your faithfulness to the truth, how you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you. They have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on in a manner worthy of God. For they began their journey for the sake of Christ, accepting no support from non-believers. Therefore, we ought to support such people, so that we may become co-workers with the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not welcome us. So, if I come, I will call attention to what he is doing in spreading false charges against us. And not content with those charges, he refuses to welcome the brothers and sisters, and even prevents those who want to do so, and expels them from the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Everyone has testified favorably about Demetrius, and so has the truth itself. We also testify for him, and you know that our testimony is true. I have much to write to you, but I would rather not write to you with pen and ink. Instead, I hope to see you soon, and we will talk together face to face. Peace to you. The friends send you their greetings. Greet the friends there, each by name. This is the word of God for us, the people of God, and together we say, thanks, thanks be, be to God. God. Today we return to our discussion on small but mighty. And uh, you know, we had this brief, uh, well, this kind of interlude last week, and I'm so grateful for Jenny and the word that she brought in uh, getting, uh, challenging us and thinking uh, about, uh, about the message that she brought last week. And so, uh, but as we turn our attention back to this small but mighty, the last in our series, uh, we're approaching this book, Third John. And we do so keeping in mind that small things can have mighty impacts. Now, not too long ago, I was fairly conflicted about this concept. Uh, Kristen and I, my wife and I, we were hosting a Christmas party for some of my classmates uh, at the, the uh, master's program I was in at South. And uh, this was the first time we had really hosted in the parsonage. And, uh, and so we did what we always do. Now, we love hosting people. We do. We, we have always hosted people. Even we li when we lived in a tiny little apartment in Atlanta, we always packed that place out with 20, 30, 40 people, uh, which in hindsight feels uh, hazardous. But that's what we did. That's what we love doing. Uh, and we, we have a, uh, a pretty similar routine that has actually just kind of become our lifestyle. We keep a very clean house. It's just something we like to do. We like to keep things clean because we like hosting people. It's just become a part of what we do. Uh, we vacuum regularly. We pick up messes immediately. We don't really leave out dirty dishes, yada, 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 all that sort of stuff. We're also fairly particular about how things are set up in the house. Every decorative piece is put in place so it could easily become a talking point. And yes, every single piece of decoration has the potential to be a talking point in our house. Uh, Every piece of furniture 
is easily accessible by whoever wants to use it and has its own story to it as well. We keep pillows and blankets on and around the seating area for people to stay comfortable uh, because we also know we keep things a little bit cool in our house because, well, when you get a lot of people packed in there, it can heat up pretty quickly anyway. Uh, ultimately, we go beyond the whole nine yards every time. If we're going to be hosting somebody, we're taking it all the way. But here's what I noticed. When the party was over, this Christmas party, and everybody had left, all 23 people that were there that evening, there was an enormous mess. Cups and plates everywhere, pillows and blankets not in their proper places, decorations had been shifted to make room for somebody's food, and no one even commented on how I distinctly vacuum a clean-cut pattern so you can see the lines in the carpet. Did none of the small stuff matter? This uh, propensity for keeping a clean house, at least for me, came about uh, from the home that I grew up in. My family maintained an open-door policy. Uh, and I put that in quotes because it wasn't that our doors were literally always wide open, but there was always one door that was unlocked at our house at all times. And we did this so that people could just come in whenever they wanted. And uh, you know, I grew up in a family that loved to host people. We just always had people over. And people actually took advantage of that, uh, especially my friends. Uh, my friends definitely took advantage of that. I, I can't even con count the number of times we would like come home from, you know, I don't know, family outing or whatever we were out doing. And uh, some of my friends would just be sitting there on our couch, watching our TV, eating our food from our fridge. It's just what would happen. And there would be a mess to clean up. And it, felt at times like nobody fully appreciated the small things that we would do to make sure this was possible. As Kristen and I were cleaning up after the Christmas party for my classmates, it occurred to me that those small things weren't the small things that mattered to begin with. What actually mattered to my classmates, and I found this out in the days to come as they were commenting on the party, was that they felt welcomed into a home that was intentionally set up to help them feel welcomed. What mattered is that the home was prepared for them, that there were pillows and blankets to help them feel comfortable, that there were food and drinks for them to grab as they pleased, that they could feel like it wasn't just someone else's home that they were occupying, but that it was their home too. This hit me also as I reflected on my home growing up, that the small thing that made a mighty difference wasn't what we might have thought. The small thing that did make a mighty difference was that people knew that they could come over whenever they wanted, and they would have a home that they were welcomed into, and that no one was excluded in this home. Small things can make a mighty difference. We might just need to know what is more important when it comes to the small things. So where does that leave us with 3 John? 3 John is the shortest book of the Bible. But wait, did you notice 
Does anybody remember uh, whenever we talked about 2 John, how many verses there were in 2 John? Twelve. Now, wait a minute. 3 John has 15. So, is 3 John actually the shortest book of the Bible? Yeah, it actually is, believe it or not. Uh, verses are weird. Uh, they don't make sense to begin with. I don't understand. I mean, I, I get it. You know, we're simple-minded people. We like things to be chunked out and broken down for us, and it makes it a whole lot easier for us to quote Scripture at people we don't like. But whenever we actually look at Scripture uh, and the verses that are in there, those verses didn't even exist in Scripture until about five or 600 years ago. Now, if you think that the majority of what the text that we're working with is about 2,000 years old, those verses haven't been around for a whole long time. So just ignore the verses to be for, for right now, because when we're talking about the shortest book of the Bible, we're looking at its original content, particularly the word count. And uh, 3 John only has 219 words. I had to write essays longer than this in the third grade. Right? This is uh, pretty simple stuff that's going on right here. Did I have to write essays in third grade? That might be an exaggeration. Yikes. Lying in the pulpit. <laughs> Another interesting fact about 3 John is that it is the only book in the New Testament that doesn't use the words Jesus or Christ. Right? Wild. The only book in the New Testament that doesn't have the name of Jesus in it. Uses God in there, I think, three times. Just not a whole lot, but yeah, three times. But other, any other references to uh, holy figures are uh, completely excluded. So, with it being so short and not even mentioning Jesus, you might be wondering why it's even included in the Bible to begin with. And to answer that, we have to look at the message that's there. John, this author that we call John at least, is, is uh, almost certainly the same author who wrote 2 John. There are lots of correlations there. And it very well could be the author that wrote 1 John. Could be. And there might be some loose connection to the author that wrote the Gospel of John. And there might be some other connections there as well. No idea, ultimately, but that's as far as we can go with this book. Uh, this John is writing to a man named Gaius, a wealthy man who hosted some traveling preachers for a short time in his home. And John commends uh, Gaius for his hospitality, expressing, he says, I have no greater joy than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Uh, which is... Uh, very well stated, right? Normally, when we talk about truth, we're talking about some kind of expression that we say, like speak the truth. But John here is going well beyond the abstract and is talking about walking in the truth. You know, if you're going to talk the talk, then you've got to walk the walk kind of thing. Uh, so John commends Gaius for his hospitality. And then he turns his attention and starts giving a warning about a man named uh, Diotrephes. And Diotrephes is probably the leader of a church in Gaius's community. Um, how he got that position, we're not really sure, but Diotrephes and John have some beef. Like, they, they just, uh, they don't like each other, uh, they don't connect, they have problems with each other's uh, leadership styles and stuff like that. Uh, now, Diotrephes, he's not teaching any heresy, okay? That, that, that much we know. He's at least teaching the right 
what we call orthodoxy, uh, the right understanding. Which is interesting because most other letters in the New Testament, whenever they're condemning somebody, they're condemning false teachers, people who are teaching heresies. But no, no, no. Uh, Diotrephes at least has the, the right teachings down. What John is calling him out for is that he, he doesn't have what's called orthopraxy, the right practice. Instead, he has what we call heteropraxy, which means he has a different practice. Uh, John is condemning Diotrephes because his practice is incorrect. Because, you see, Diotrephes, he has been, and this is just kind of wild, uh, but it still happens today. Diotrephes has been excommunicating people from the church that he doesn't agree with. So, John is going to confront him in person the next time he's in town because, well, John's already sent a letter to Diotrephes, and Diotrephes basically shredded it and burned it and, you know, completely ignored it and all that sort of stuff. So, John's like, all right, got to talk to this guy face-to-face, -face, maybe pull a St. Nicholas and throw a few bows kind of thing. I don't know what's going to happen in their conversation. We don't get that far. Uh, but John's pretty upset by this guy, Diotrephes, who, for whatever reason, is kicking people out of the church. Then uh, John encourages Gaius with the words, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Uh, and this comes into play here uh, as we reflect back on what else John has already said. And then John cl closes the letter with some excitement about this random guy named Demetrius. I don't know what he's talking about. That's the whole, like, you know, you had to be there kind of moment, I guess. Uh, and then promises to talk to uh, Gaius and the rest of the community in person because John's tired of wasting paper and ink. So, what is important about 3 John is that in many ways it's a continuation of 2 John, particularly when it comes to 2 John's thesis statement where he says, uh, I ask you, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning. Let us love one another. So 3 John kind of picks up from the same thesis statement. And uh, as we approach Valentine's Day, a day characterized by love and all that sort of stuff, uh, we need this reminder that John has for Gaius that love is not simply some abstract concept. It's a lifestyle. Love is absolutely meaningless if it's not accompanied by an action. For example, if I told all of you that I love my wife, but I never told her that, and I never showed her that, and I never acted on that love, how long do you think she would stick around? I can tell you it wouldn't be very long because she's the kind of person that asks me uh, at least once a day, why do you love me today? Apparently I need to be doing a better job of telling her. <laughs> yeah. If we don't display our love, give some kind of representation that it is actually there, telling somebody, showing somebody, acting on it, then it's a completely meaningless concept. I could tell all of you all day long how much I love my wife, but if she never experiences that, that love is meaningless. Same is also true for my love of Taco Bell. If I don't go and purchase Taco Bell, then Taco Bell is never going to know that I love it. So 
love must be followed up with actions. I display my love for her through things like words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, giving gifts, and physical touch. Yeah, those are the five love languages that, Jerry, that Gary Chapman came up with. Without the practical side of love, there is no real love. This is why John is so affirming toward Gaius, because he showed his love in a very practical way. What does he do? This is that part where I ask for a little bit of feedback. What does Gaius do to show practical love? Yeah, thank you, George. Yeah, he welcomes people. He welcomes people into his home and strangers, right? Uh, John is uh, important to point out uh, in verse 5, Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brothers and sisters, even though they are strangers to you, right? Gaius doesn't know these people. They're randos who have just walked into town. And John has said, hey, do you think you could open up your house to these people for a little bit? And Gaius, you know, this wealthy guy, we, we assume he's wealthy because he at least has a, a space enough to host people, uh, says, sure, come on in. Stay as long as you need to. We'll, we'll be good buddies after all of this. Uh, this is, I, I have loved getting to actually experience this practice right here. Uh, in person. Has anybody here ever heard of the app called Couchsurfing? Yeah. All right. So if, if you definitely need to try this out at least once in your life. Uh, it's like Airbnb, but you don't pay for it. You don't pay for the place you're staying. Uh, there, there is no real like exchange or anything. It's simply you let somebody come stay at your house on your couch or you know, however you want that to work out. And, uh, and then like they go about their business and you go about their business. And the reciprocity is whenever you're ready to go uh, somewhere, then you get to stay at somebody else's house. And so Kristen and I, when we lived in Atlanta, we did this all the time. And man, we, we came across some interesting people uh, doing some couch surfing. Uh, we came across people who, were, who had uh, come to Atlanta because they were going to be extras in Stranger Things uh, or Ant-Man and the Wasp whenever they were filming all that stuff in Atlanta. Uh, we came across people who, uh, who were living out of their van and driving from, uh, from coast to coast. Uh, we came across some, uh, some guys from South Korea who were trying to make their way from, California, from the beaches of California to the beaches of Georgia by breakdancing their way across America. I mean, it's just, you know, just wild stuff that you get to encounter. But then the reciprocity is that uh, whenever we would go on trips, like we went on a trip to Chicago, and we found a clergy couple of all people. We didn't know that they were a clergy couple, but they were uh, in the Episcopal Church who welcomed us into their home. And turns out we had a whole bunch of connections with them just because they were willing to let strangers into their home. This kind of hospitality. Uh, that's practical love. That's actually showing somebody that you have the space within your heart for them to take up room in your world, right? Whenever 2 John, going back, whenever 2 John asks, I, I ask you not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning, let us love one another, I see hospitality as the fulfillment of that love. In fact, I, I personally believe that hospitality is the basis for all love in every form. In order to love someone, you have to welcome them into your world. You have to make room for them in your life. 
You have to make time for them in your schedule. You have to give your energy for them, preparing for them, uh, hosting them, saying goodbye to them. Uh, to welcome and host someone stands as the most basic form of love and the most essential form of love for the church. Because if a person does not feel welcomed in the church, then we have failed in our Christian duty. If a person does not feel welcomed in the church, then we have failed our Christian duty. Which is precisely why John then calls out Diotrephes. Third John is... Uh, it conveniently contrasts two forms of Christian leadership. On the one hand, we have Gaius, who is a simple believer and who welcomes people with radical hospitality. On the other hand is Diotrephes, who is a church leader and who kicks people out of the church if they don't agree with him and his leadership. Now, pray tell, who is the better Christian? The pastor who excludes or the believer who includes? Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty obvious, right? It's the, whole, it's the whole Good Samaritan story all over again, right? Jesus is telling the people about uh, a Levite and a priest are, are, end up walking by this man who has been beaten senseless on the side of the road, a Jewish man who has been beaten bloody on the side of the road, and they just pass him by on the other side. Meanwhile, a Samaritan, the scourge of the earth, comes up and helps this man out and pays for his healing and stuff like that, right? It's very obvious who the neighbor is in that scenario. Uh, same in third John's letter. He, he sets this letter up very conveniently in this kind of contrast to be able to say, yeah, this is what's going on here. Uh, you can clearly see what's the right practice and what's the wrong practice. I, uh, I believe that the church and church leaders should be inclusive and hospitable, not exclusive and hateful. And whenever I say I believe that, I, I don't just simply mean like, yeah, that's my personal opinion. No, 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 I'm, I'm absolutely convinced of that, that if the church is not inclusive and hospitable, it will die. John Allen Turner, a uh, theologian of sorts and speaker of sorts, has this very interesting uh, quote. He says, it's hard to convince people that a God they cannot see loves them when a church they can see doesn't seem to like them. It's hard to convince people that a God they cannot see loves them when a church they can see doesn't seem to like them. That's why hospitality is so important. And that's why this small book has such a mighty lesson. Let love be practical. Right? The small thing that Kristen and I were missing out on when we were hosting people is not what we thought it should be, like the decorations or the cleaning or the organizing. The small but mighty thing that was way more important to people was that they felt welcomed and wanted in our home. This is the lesson that John needs the church to hear today. The things that matter in the church is not how good our Bible study is or how powerful the worship is or how good we are at the food. And I'm pretty pumped about the food after this. The thing that matters is that people feel welcomed and wanted 
in the church. No church that follows Christ should ever feel compelled to leave someone out. In fact, our hospitality should be so radical that we leave the comfort of these four walls and seek out those who need to feel included. The whole field of dreams mentality doesn't hold up anymore. This whole build it and they will come thing, it's, uh, it's emptied. Right? We, we don't have access to that anymore. Instead, we need the whole go, therefore, into all the world, make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything I have commanded you, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Lo, I am with you always, Jesus said to his disciples 2,000 years ago. If only the church could get it together. So, church... Who are the people in our community that need to be welcomed in this church? Is it our homeless and transient population? Is it the people of color that we feel uncomfortable around? Is it someone who is, God forbid, an open Republican or Democrat? Is it someone from the LGBTQIA community? Is it someone who has a mental or physical disability? Is it someone, and I can't believe I'm suggesting this, who is actually a Baptist? (laughs) Let love be practical, church. As Hebrews 13, verse 2 encourages us, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that some have entertained angels without knowing it. Let us pray.